so far you have your experience has been making a good amount of money returns in very small cap companies is that the way you generally start off do you look for only small cap companies and then i'm i'm totally uh, uh, i would say market cap agnostic but i also strongly believe in the view that uh, basically the trees don't grow to the sky right so anybody which has a huge base will find it extremely matlab you can't think of uh, reliance being a 100 bagger from <laughs> okay so so anyway so so if you are thinking in terms of multi baggers you have to to move into the stream which is like uh, it's you you largely have to take the top 500 companies out of the equation right so so <clears throat> and that's the stream but now earlier my my ideas were generated out of screeners and uh, queries but uh, now my ideas is having built a network with uh, i know quite a few people now so sure. now the idea generation happens by just by discussion among people and whenever there are meetings everybody talks about something that they like at any point of time and that could easily become the starting point for uh, you to dig deeper sure, sure. but then uh, can you take us through your research process just to okay. so once they, let's say you understand the basic idea about a company what is the next step you follow okay so so one thing was when i worked with kpmg right at the start uh, uh, i used to work on uh, financial models sure. so so for the first year i was just doing financial models so and and the insight that came to me around that is uh, and we uh, we did a one month course just on modeling what i realized early at that point of time is that financial models are uh, don't don't give you any particular insights you are basically building those models to justify whatever you already have in mind so so <laughs> half the times we used to get mandate from my promoter uh, my partner that okay this is the valuation now build a model to justify <laughs> so 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 it's so, pretty so, honest yeah sure so so that's uh, so so frankly my analysis uh, does not do dcf i don't do dcf because uh, DCF valuation, there are two three levers you can dramatically change the numbers. Right. But I do try to track the cash flows uh, for the next uh, two three years, and I don't like to think beyond three years. It's too difficult for anybody to to try to even start predicting. Too many things can change. Right. So my and and another uh, big change that happened was that earlier because i was uh, running uh, queries and screeners i tend to buy what was statistically the cheapest right so obviously i ended up uh, companies with big asset plays or holding companies right and then i realized that uh, unlike in the us where uh, there are catalyst or activist who would unlock the value there is nothing that can happen out here right so so that uh, over a period of time has dawned on me that uh, india does not uh, have catalyst to unlock value and there have been like you can cases you can call them fingers yeah yeah, yeah. so so even matlab uh, again uh, professor bakshi was involved in one and he's one of uh, being an activist ever again in his life so so uh, so so it's dawned so now what i look at is uh, the logic of gap growth had a reasonable valuation right so what i have seen in india growth is rewarded over and above any other factor 
right so as long as a company is growing fast you can be rest assured it will command good multiples so so now if you get hold of a company which which hasn't gone anywhere in terms of top line or bottom line but you see there is a transition point either because something has changed in the industry or whether their capacity a much bigger capacity is coming into play whatever the reason is mm-hmm. if you catch those companies at that trigger point and just the growth itself sure. can can help the stock re-rate itself so that is one important angle that has i've tried to build into my analysis uh, the uh, other is can I just add sure. a question here so um, uh, one observation here is that and i can pretty much define it as a pre 2007 way of looking at things and post 2000 you know 2007-8 ways of looking at things initially there was a lot of focus pay uh, you know paid to the only pnl side of the whole thing so if the growth is coming no matter how bad uh, the balance sheet is getting to get that growth uh the companies were rewarded one case in point could be bank loan or the world mm-hmm. but those so called infra companies so called infra companies right. and they were rewarded pretty well uh do you see and since you track these kind of companies do you see a change in the mindset of the players in the industry now in the market uh where the 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 value to the balance sheet has really started coming up you know people don't really give their growth that much Unless Sunitin is along with a good balance sheet. See, see earlier, see there is one big change that has happened is that uh, earlier what used to happen is that uh, if say a consultant like me or an investor like me goes to an X Y Z company and then tell them that okay you you guys show growth and your stock can move 10x from here. Sure. Hmm. And once in a while the promoters would agree to that. Sure. And then they would show the growth and show. non-existing profits which were not there but they were showing it because what happened was that uh, the whole idea was that okay show profits for the first three quarters and then reverse in the last quarter sure right so and and if the stock price moves in the first three quarters then we all benefit right so a lot of that happened yeah. take me through your selling process you know you get into a company uh, when do you think about liquidating your position selling your position is valuation a big criteria Uh, a lot of value investors come out and say that they are guilty of selling out too early. Yeah. yeah. So so uh, yeah. Obviously, I'm I fall in the same boat. But uh, one of the big lessons that which has also started giving me comfort is that I have stopped selling in a single lot. I now break up my selling into four to five lots. Do you buy lots or not? I have uh, I I bought historically in one lot, but I'm trying to change that process also because. Uh, Uh, I've been reading a bit from uh, Ian Castle, and then I've been uh, talking right. a lot to Ayush on this angle. So Ayush clearly changed his strategy, uh, where he started averaging up, and then he's got phenomenal returns over the last three years because of that. Right. So 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 that is something that I want to incorporate. But I, I except for one stock, I I I can't say I have done it for many. So. Right. So, uh, but selling uh, clearly I've uh, over the last. Three four years I've developed a model. So hypothetically, I'll sell twenty percent on the initial. What I tend to do is when I buy a stock, I have a price target in mind. Sure. I, once it reaches the price target, I will sell twenty percent of it. Sure. And then every ten to twenty percent rise on it, I'll sell another twenty, another twenty, another twenty. Sure. So hypothetically, if the stock even doubles from the price I've initially sold it at, sure. I'll still end up getting fifty percent. More than the stock price, I initially sold it. 
and and sometime during that high rise uh, rising up the stock will correct so if it falls below my initial selling price i may even buy it back so just it's not incremental buying of more shares yeah. i am just covering the shares as well. i think this probably is the best learning because uh, nobody else can teach us about the art of selling better than a person who has rode 100 bagger and a 90 bagger so that's anyway so that's you just need to be lucky to even think about a 100 bagger but uh, i think uh, if you if you get your uh, strategy right and if you have a investing career of say 20 30 40 years sure. you'll definitely get your 10 bagers right sure. so so and once in a while those 10 bagers will become a 100 bagger as well but as of now your searching is not so let me just summarize you don't look for specifically small cap companies but uh, oh, uh, i i i like to to look at companies which are uh, basically which haven't shown a sharp price uh, appreciation in the last one year okay so any company that has moved up more than 100% in the last 52 weeks i typically wouldn't want to 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 dig too deep on it so so so, so one of the things that uh, really excites me is to get in a so called undiscovered it could be a large cap also but which hasn't moved so that means the market is not interested in it so 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 many times uh, out of the circle many companies come through where uh, where uh, they say that it is interesting and clearly it's interesting yeah. but then the company would have moved 2x 3x in the last one year sure. Sure. but so so may uh, historically i have given it a pass but but now i'm trying to get out of that price anchoring in my mind uh, but i think i made the most money where uh, where i'm the first one Where I am among the first few, right. I should not be say the. Right. I am among the first few, so so I I don't want to get into a stock when there has been a sharp uptick. Right. Sure. So uh, so the only thing missing in the whole picture now is your portfolio management strategy. So uh, first of all, how concentrated or how diversified you are. So I have always because I read Buffett, uh, how strong I was. I always had a relatively concentrated portfolio. So my filter is, I don't want more than ten stocks in my portfolio. Yeah. So and, and in order to get a, the eleventh stock, I have to sell one of the existing ones too. So that itself makes a very tough filter for me to even think seriously about a stock. Okay. Right. And is the uh, is the position the order position is equally distributed? Like yeah, I I like to uh, my opening uh, buying position typically is eight to ten percent of my long term. See what has happened is my arbitrage portfolio has also grown. so so arbitrage portfolio there the logic is very different you are looking at uh, say 2 to 10% returns but you are focusing on velocity of returns how many time you are able to churn that money within the year right so so and there you can take concentrated bets so so, sure. so if i said that minimum i want to allocate say uh, say 8% into a, into my long portfolio I will not allow any stock in my portfolio to be more than thirty-five percent of my stock. So, so that this is learning from Ashyan. <laughs> so, right. so, so if it starts hitting crossing thirty percent, uh, I'll start selling it. Okay. If, And then shift it to your risk arbitrage portfolio, or no, it's it's lying in cash. It's so, so, cash, so, 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 uh, so I, I like sitting on cash. Okay. So, so how much cash are you putting on? Forty percent. Interesting. Uh, so, uh, are your cash levels defined by? Uh, 
yeah yeah so, so that's another level so so i read about this guy called uh, uh david spencer yeah. so he runs the yale and uh, yale and on so he he wrote this book and uh, yale endowment returns over the last 30 years have been among the mm-hmm. top yeah. top 10% percentile if not the top yeah. so and one of the big things he said that uh, i have made my money not by picking individual uh, asset managers or companies or uh, or uh, assets but the way i have made my money is by doing strategic allocation across asset classes so is a strong votary of mean reversion so the whole philosophy is that suppose you have two asset class and one asset class gives you a return of say uh, 50% in a year and the second asset class doesn't go anywhere so after the year ends what you do is suppose it's 50 50% and now it's become it's 50 50 rupees and now the asset class that has outperformed has become 75 so now 100 has become 125 right so what you do is you sell 12 and a half of the the uh, asset class that has outperformed and add it to the asset class that has outperformed so that you can make it 50 50 i think uh, map faber does more or less uh, something on the same lines yeah, yeah. So uh, he dividing it on the he divides it on the geography basis yeah so so i'm talking about two asset class you can right. divide this asset class into five asset yeah, class you right. can do it across <clears throat> so so emerging market investing is all so those guys and that's how those emerging market etfs are important they don't invest in a company in in india right. they would invest in an etf in india right right so you know uh, you mentioned swenson but he has been very popular in saying that uh, it's not only like 20% or 30% he said 100% of my returns comes from only portfolio allocation and not my returns he has very uh, you know strongly propagated that fact that stock selection per se is not not less important it's not important at all uh yeah so, so i went on to the other extreme so, so, so one is that he has a portfolio scale where he can scout the global market right so so like at this point if i say that i'm bullish on oil so how do i build a position on oil which is a like a five year call right so so i don't have the, the wherewithal to have those kind of exposures yeah, so, sure so I, i was having this discussion with uh, uh, shimi who is the ucla endowment fund cio actually he came to india very recently yeah yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. okay okay lecture. so we met them then we were having the discussion so he said a lot of this kind of endowment uh, investing is decided by the asset liability match and then the allocation becomes important so right. for a smaller endowment fund it will become very difficult for them to do that kind of a diversified allocation strategy because liability won't be yeah so so it's it's a thought process and i'll i'll just try to highlight how i incorporated it so so what i have done is that i i review my net worth say 800 and then i have decided i want to idle say 60% has to be equity 25% has to be debt 10% has to be real estate and 5% is cash or cash equivalent sure. so these are the four asset classes for me sure. right and then then i do a review every 3 months sure. and see ideal position is this but on the current market prices where each of these asset classes sit sure. the allocation is there and once i do that review i know that okay i am overweight on equity sure. now i want to shift money out of equity so but real estate is very lumpy to decrease or increase doesn't work that way easily right. but at least on the back of the mind i know that i now want to make an investment on real estate or i want to exit uh, one part of my real estate Fair so 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 
so so i i i i've honestly done this for the last 4 years and it's been really helpful in the sense that it allows me to sleep better at night yeah yeah you live a very balanced life at least no one stock can change your fortune so to speak yeah, yeah. in the in the negative side that <laughs> yeah so so on the positive so one is yeah uh, uh, the other thing is that the return expense one of the things uh, having trying to do risk arbitrage is another very interesting insight that i've got which which uh, i think is has been really helpful to me is uh when i used to do risk arbitrage and would have uh, return expectations of say at least this year to yaar 30% aana hi chahiye that will uh, and i started with that only so so uh that what it made me do was take much more riskier decisions yeah. say i would try to anticipate an open offer so if a news report would come and i would say that in all probabilities an open offer are chalo position na now what i realized is 9 out of 10 times nothing happened right and then when uh, i would face a loss in that trade and then exit so and then uh, again uh, there's another guy who has been very helpful in formulating this strategy for me he said that why don't you keep your return expectations lower right. say you want to pay play 15 to 18% right but now look for trades where there is a high surety of getting those returns right and once in a while you will get a positive accident so so having said ki mera threshold ab 18% hai right. there's not been a single year where i've uh, i've been uh, less than 20% for the last four years sure. so so this is a very interesting because if you are looking at uh, rationalizing your return expectations it will allow you not to take too many risks well, this makes sense actually there's a lot of uh, uh, cricket analogy in this as well if you go out to set a total and if you going to uh, put it in your mind that uh, this is a very friendly batting wicket let's give them a target of 400 you're going to set uh, that, that's like too stiff a target and you'll take yeah. a stupid risk and, and you'll end up getting out at out from the first ball so yeah. you won't even spend yeah. an over yeah you'll end up uh, at 180 or something yeah yeah so yeah so i have the interview also so 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 that's uh, some of the insights that have come through over time so so i'm pretty comfortable with where things are now under the skins because i'm on cash i'm not too worried about the volatility in the market But if i may ask who is the person who guided you on this strategy so this is a guy called uh, nikhil gupta he's in gulgaon uh, he's on a group if you remember so nikhilesh yeah. so so he's been an out and out arbitrager who who just hates taking any kind of risk so you'll probably take his interview also on arbitrage and yeah yeah so so so, so yeah, that'll be fun so there there are 100 ways to skin a cat true so so you can't say that this strategy is the best strategy by far right so one strategy may work in a particular year another strategy will work very differently in another year so so and anyways the strategy has to suit your personality too and it has to work to your temperament also okay. so so uh, you might thrive on a strategy but i can't do it because exactly. i can't sleep at night right so so or vice versa so 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 temperamentally so so again investing is more about uh, behavioral psychology than than uh, yeah. i know so uh, iq is a very small part of the entire
what makes you uncomfortable you know in terms of valuation when you say valuation makes me uncomfortable what is it are you talking about are you talking about uh, we, we all know that the markets have a tendency to overshoot in both directions correct so are you talking that okay there are a lot of investors i know like we are having monish babra that day at india only and uh, he said that i sell at intrinsic value or sometime very close to the intrinsic value calculation right uh, do you believe in that path or since you know that the market tends to overshoot mm-hmm. beyond the intrinsic value calculations you give it some leeway and you hold it even if you know that the intrinsic value is lower than the current price how much is too much okay how okay much yeah 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 that's a very good question i mean let me just uh think aloud about it and uh, the thoughts evolve with time so i'll just mention about the present thoughts which i have sure so first of all coming to the intrinsic value we need to be very clear in our own minds how do we calculate the intrinsic value because you know intrinsic value calculation itself might differentiate from person to person definitely and then as graham said it's a range it's yeah. a number it's never a number in the range can also be quite wide so i'll just describe how i calculate the intrinsic value for for a particular company i mean given that it checks all the criteria which i have set in place it's a good company which i want to invest in so i try to calculate i try to foresee in the future that what is the kind of growth this company has i mean based on the historical past and given the scale of opportunity which this business has and the competitive position of the company what is the very conservative growth which this company can have okay. and how much can i foresee because the more i mean the farther you go away from the present time the the uh, uh, dim the prospects become the more lesser confident you become about the prospects sure. i mean if i have to chart the growth of a company for the next 3 years maybe i can say with 95% confidence right. the moment you increase the time period to 10 years i will say possibly with 85% confidence the moment you cross it to 15 years i would say with 70% confidence so with every range of uh, you know timeline the confidence decreases sure. in, in the numbers so for me for certain businesses the timeline is let's say 8 to 10 years that i can be reasonably sure about the projections that i put in uh let me take for example a company where i was invested in sera sanitary ware so let's talk about the sanitary business sure. i mean that will help your listeners and also me to cons- to consolidate consolidate my thoughts for example if you look at sanitary ware Now, what is the scale of opportunity for sanitary ware in India? You know, fifty percent of the population is still defecating in the open. That is point one, and the population is only increasing. No matter which you know, which where the dollar is, where the crude oil price is, the population is only increasing at at around one percent per year. And out of the existing population, fifty percent does not have the uh, washroom facility in their house, or they are not using it. Point number two. people are aspirational so right from the very first thing having a toilet at your own home still in the rural areas having a toilet at your own home and having a newspaper delivered at your house is considered a very aspirational aspect all right so the second tailwind is the aspirational aspect of the population now you can uh, put it along with these uh the, the thrust which the government is giving on people to move to move away from open defecation such bharat abhiyan the celebrity endorsement which are coming along with it so there is you know a, a social noise which i would say to get rid of this bad habit 
we have some clarity here. Uh, you are talking about a position which was before the Swachh Bharat announcement happened, or you bought Sarah later on. So was Swachh Bharat a part of your thesis? No, no, no. Swachh Bharat. I mean, previously also. So this has been an ongoing, I would say, governmental thrust, not only sure. because of Swachh Bharat. Sure. Swachh Bharat was earlier known as Nirmal Bharat Abhiyan. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the yeah. So, so basic, I, I would say the basic uh, thrust is that people are moving away from open application and we have a huge scale of opportunity 50% of the 50 56% of the people are still not you know have toilets that is point number 2 and there is a lot of social noise there is a lot of celebrity endorsement there is aspiration there is uh, legal thrust also because the governments governments and the uh, judiciary also is you know the laws are being put in place where you can't fight the elections at the gram panchayat levels, at the local levels, if you don't have a toilet at home. Then there are a lot of uh, monetary subsidies which are coming from the government for to encourage people to get a toilet. That is point number two about the tailwinds which the sector is facing. Now, if we come to the players part, there are only three players in the country, in the organized segment. I mean, major share of the organized segment is is captured by these three companies, which is HSIL, Hindustan Sanitary, Periware, and Sera. There are many other companies, but these three companies capture, I think, 80 to 90 percent of the organized market. Now, the third point is that in this market, 50 percent of the share, uh, 50 percent share is still unorganized, is captured by unorganized sector. So, where you have you know, hundreds of units which are spread out in Morbi, Gujarat, and other places. So 50% of the market is captured by the organized segment and 50% is unorganized. As people are moving towards premiumization, as people are moving towards aspiration to fulfill their aspirational needs, they are moving to buy brands. Right? So these three companies are major beneficiaries. HSIL, Periware and Sera. Now there are different segmentations which these companies have done based on the premium segment, luxury segment or the mass segment, affordable segment, a lot of things which they have done. But just to give a general perspective of how, how, you know, how long can you think in terms of time periods, I would say, for example, Sera or a sanitary wear manufacturer, I would say that looking 10 to 15 years ahead in terms of growth is, is a quite a confident, I would say, metric for me to look at or to assess and also coupled by the fact that entry of any new player whether it is domestic is is extremely difficult because of the kind of entry barriers and the brands and the scale of operations which these three companies have created around them so for a fourth or a fifth or a sixth player to come and really challenge these companies is quite i would say a remote possibility and for an international player, again in the mass segment, there are international players who have come up in the luxury segment. You have American Standard, Toto, Kohler has come in. Yeah. But to be in the mass segment, it's very difficult for any other company to come here or a, a Chinese ex player to export here. Right? What they have done is collaborations with the, these companies itself and they, they buy some of their luxury requirements from China. So that gives me a lot of confidence that the sector is experiencing very good tailwinds. The companies are in a very good position. No new player can come in. The Chinese can't disrupt this market. The bargaining power of suppliers is very, very poor because you are, you know, you are just using uh, clay and you are using uh, other 
ceramic raw materials which are abundantly available the bargaining bargaining power of buyers is not high because ultimately they have only three or four brands to select from there is no pricing regulation from the government there is no threat of a substitute there is no technological disruption which can disrupt this company or or a sanitary wear as a sector so all in all combined it gives me it puts me in a very comfortable position to actually you know look ahead 10 to 15 years that this is how this company is going to grow that is point, part one of the thesis the second part of the thesis is that if you if i look in the hindsight this company has grown at quite a fast pace north of i think 20 25% per year in the last 5 7 years but what is the growth rate at which i am comfortable putting it 10 years from now now again there are two parts to it the volume part and the value part because of the inbuilt inflation 4 to 5% inflation or 3 to 4% inflation that we can think going forward so the amount of volume which this company has to do is only 5 to 6% to make for that 10% value proposition for the net sales to grow at 10% so give i mean uh, combine combining all these factors i i feel quite confident about projecting the growth at a rate of 10% or 12% for the next 10 15 years for this company going forward and also looking at the uh, the the segment where hsi i mean there are you know further offshoots to this thinking process but this is the basic idea of looking at a particular sector looking at a position of a company looking at the threat of uh, entry of new players the the foreign players the regulation the bargaining power of buyers the bargaining power of suppliers sure. so once i have come to this kind of uh, insight about a company and i can uh, put the numbers with some confidence some high degree of confidence then i take the valuations so so what i am saying here is there are two kinds of i would say conservative attitude which i think i built into this model one is that i am not taking a very long period of time i'm just taking 10 to 15 years to 10 to 15 is not long anchor well it depends on the perspective of an industry okay so that is what i said i mean if you ask me for any other industry for example i mean uh, uh, mr buffett just bought this company in the oil sector right. which supplies i think uh, you know parts of machineries or which are required in the oil sector and somebody asked him about the view of oil so he said we are not buying it for 5 years we are buying it for 100 years right. so i mean if i compare 100 to 10 to 100 that's sure quite lesser a time yeah yeah perspective so i mean um, i'm pretty sure that the commodity you know these kind of com- companies uh, essentially will fall out of that framework anyways because 10 years 15 years kind of outlook is very difficult to have in these kind of commodity driven companies well i would say that you know it depends from company to company if you are looking at pure commodity companies yes they wouldn't even clear the first hurdle right. you look at a raw material supplier zinc player or a steel player right. that will fall out of the radar but again uh, there are companies which are commodity players in a different sense that they are being able to sell brands to people they are commodity players for example even pedialyte i mean in fevicol i mean it's it's a commodity but they have this huge knack of creating brands around their commodities so that will make a lot of difference asian paints so i wouldn't uh, say categorically that commodity players are out but i would say that it depends from company to company and it will simply depend on whether i am able to take a view long term view whether i am able to see that this company has pricing power whether this company would be around this sector would be around 10 to 15 years from now 
what is the bargaining power would it be fair to say ankur that uh, for all those companies where you're not able to look 10 years ahead they fall off the radar yes interesting okay uh, so i mean let me just go back to the question which we which came into picture was the valuation how much is enough and how much How much is too yes. much? Yes. Right. So, so you said you value the company. Yeah. And um, uh, on the basis of a certain level of confidence, you put your numbers and you come up with the valuation parameter, uh, the valuation number, whatever you feel the yeah, company yeah. is, and then you buy it. Yeah. Uh, what so, is the process ahead? Mm-hmm. So, I would say, Puneet, I mean, I would start with a conservative level. Sure. So, in some cases, I would say ten percent is conservative for me. Ten percent, for example, I told you about Sarah, ten percent. A ten-year or a fifteen-year horizon is 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 comfortable for me. In some companies that I may not have the idea about going forward ten years, but I would say for five years I am quite comfortable that this is the kind of growth that this company can come command, right? So uh, it may depend from company to company. The time period may also vary from company to company. It can be ten, fifteen, five, eight. So yeah. So once I put on these numbers. So I derive uh, an uh, intrinsic value of the company. Uh, again, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm just finding that you know, I think each yeah, step and yeah, value yeah. kinds of the uh, listeners can benefit out of this. Right. So the process you're saying, uh, are you implying a DCF kind of uh, you know module to value companies when you're saying I put the numbers, you take a sort of a DCF number? It's a DCF, but it doesn't require complicated set of numbers. It's a DCF. Yeah, yeah, it's a DCF. But, uh, yes. 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 So it's a DCF. It's a DCF. Yes. So, do you use free cash flow in your calculation, or do you use earnings as the base, and then you do some kind of adjustments to those? How do you approach the free cash flow number? So, what I uh, consider free cash flow in my mind is basically the cash which is left with the company after it has paid, you know, every stakeholder. A lender, the the capex which is required to run the current operations of the company, and also the government, which includes taxes. So which means taxes. So I mean, for me, cash flow is finally at the end of the day when you settle the bill for everybody. What is the cash left in your till? That is the cash. The technical definition of free cash flow to equity is. Uh, for me, I mean, I usually take PAT for free cash flow, and then adjust it for. If I I believe that the depreciation which the company has provided is lower than the actual which I think, sure. so just to put in the conservative number, sure. and uh, also I mean I try to normalize if I try to see that uh, what is the tax rate which the company I mean the usual adjustments sure. look out for the tax rate if the company has paid twenty percent taxes for the last three years then you know that there is some kind of you know benefit which the company has got and it is not going to sustain in the long term so so, so to normalize it you have to bring it to thirty two percent tax rate. But do you uh, uh, refer to the cash flows vis-a-vis the PAT to see the difference between the accrual accounting, how much of a accrual basis things are happening in the company? Because a lot of in a lot of cases there will be some expenses, uh, you know, which are non-cash uh, in nature or non-operational in nature, so to speak. Uh, do you get the cash flow perspective here, or you just take PAT and then uh, adjust it with the depreciation? No, I would say the valuation is the last uh, process. So before that, I have uh, uh, compared the company on the f- uh, cash flow in in terms of how different is it from the PAT? Is it different from the PAT? If yes, then uh, how much it is different? 
and then why is it different and also the cash flow before working capital changes and after working capital changes is there a variance if yes then why is this variance i mean so all those questions again for the benefit of listeners just put, let me put it in a flow chart sort of a thing <sighs> all these things which are doing is the quality of earnings check so to speak and see whether there's too much of variance and if the variance is there why is there yeah uh, most of the times the variance if it's too consistent anyway i think we will doubt the quality of the earnings of the well if there's no justification yeah if there is no uh, uh, well justification for that particular variance So I mean, I just take the pad, which is a free cash flow number for me. I mean, after making all the adjustments, and uh, I then take the uh, the growth for whatever time I am comfortable with. Yes, I use a terminal number for three percent, which is a perpetual, I mean, perpetual growth rate of three percent, and uh, then I discount it at a rate of ten percent. Ten percent. Yes. You know, one it is a round number, so it makes the calculations in my mind very easy <laughs> for me. If I make it eleven or twelve, I'll have to go back to Excel, which which I don't like. So, so I like to make a lot of mental calculations. And once I have this, so once I make a standard benchmark, so I can compare a lot of companies on the fly without having reference to their numbers. Back of the unvelop calculation becomes easy. Back of the mind, I would say. Just to put a rough point, but that should not be the rational for. No, no, that is just. I mean, that is one part of it. The second part is. Uh, the triple A bond yield is seven to eight percent. So, if I were to invest in a very safe asset, I would put all my money in a triple A bond yield, which will get me seven to eight percent. So, if I am taking the risk of investing in equities, I should be paid or rewarded. For investing in equities, so a two or three percent premium. Uh, so that is what I look for. So that's that's. So I think the only difference is that I it fits slightly more premium, but then in that case, uh, selection becomes slightly more restrictive. But uh, let me ask you, uncle, since you are doing a very conservative estimate in terms of your discount rate, right? Um, you know, I mean, if I if I think like a concentrated investor, which you are. Would you be better off taking a uh, more higher discount rate number so that you get far more, far lesser companies first of all in your valuation range, and secondly, the one you will get uh, will be extremely at a reasonable price, and thirdly, um, from the equities in itself, um, shouldn't the premium be above the normal debt cost which is there? So let's say a corporate can generally take a loan at around eleven percent. Should you be expecting more money when you're using your discount rate? Or see, one view can be very simple that okay, discount rate is just a number I can take twelve, thirteen percent also, and it won't make a difference. But I'm just asking, just trying to get your thought process behind that. Have you never given a thought to that debt ratio vis-a-vis the equity premium? No, I mean the the eleven or twelve percent. First of all, that is a pre-tax number. For for a corporate who's borrowing, so for him, I mean, after tax deductions, it's it's much lesser. So the number of ten percent is higher than status. I mean, mathematically, that number is slightly higher. Now, my sense is that 
I want to put a lot of emphasis on the quality of the company which I am buying. I, so I try to keep the standards of the company which I buy very high. So the conservatism part. So I would say 80% of my time and my uh, mental energy is spent on looking at the business, the company, and the management. The valuation is like 15 to 20% time I spent on valuation. Yeah. So. So the point number one is that my confidence or my comfort, I would say, comes from the the quality of the entry barrier which is around that company. So uh, I uh, do not uh, derive a lot of comfort by taking a higher discount factor. So you come at a value number using Dash. Do you also apply a margin of safety after the calculation of this value, just like a norm? Yeah, I usually, I mean, I'm, I'm I I uh, apply a twenty five percent margin of safety. Fair so. Now again, back to the question we started. How high so, is too high? Yeah. So, so you start with a yeah. number. Till what point are you going to hold it? So I mean, I would say that uh, based on a lot of iterations which I've done on the return calculations, what kind of returns you can get if the price moves up beyond the intrinsic value, and up to what intrinsic value. So th that number is something around 1.75 times to two times my estimate of my conservative intrinsic value for example for example there is a company a and i have you know uh, i have conservative i have a conservative estimate of 1000 rupees per share of per share of that value of that company now point number 1 is that i am already truncating the life of that company to 10 or 15 years but i know with a very high confidence and a very high conviction level that this company is going to stay for a long period of time. It's not only for 10 years. It's going to stay for 20, 30, 40 years, right? Even more than that. So that uh, that also gives a lot of uh, margin of safety by the long runway that this company has ahead of it. And two, once so the conservative conservative estimates are already inbuilt into the workings, and once the market has recognized that opportunity, you know. I am hesitant to take my profits from that opportunity because the market has now realized uh, uh, the, the uh, potential of this company. But over a period of time, like I said, I try to keep a hurdle rate of 17%. Over a period of time, as the price keeps on moving up, the expected return from that opportunity will keep on dropping. So at certain point of time, uh, I would say. I did these workings that at what price the expected return will drop to 12%, at what price will the expected return drop to 11%, right? And secondly, you know, it usually doesn't happen that you have invested in a company and it has become, it has crossed your intrinsic value within six months. So it usually happens, usually, over a long period of time. So let's say two or three years. By that time, you have got more insights about the company because you are invested in the company, you are in more about the company. So, a lot of nuances about the company which you are earlier unaware of, uh, they get clarified in your mind. And uh, you can be more, you can look farther ahead about that company. Initially, let's say you were looking at 8 years, now you can say, okay, I am more confident. You know, whatever I thought, this company has demonstrated it. So now this company can go from 8 years to 12 years or 14 years or 15 years. So the, that iteration in my mind has given me some kind uh, uh, number of 1.75 times to 2 times the intrinsic value. At that point, I mean if my 
value of my stock reaches 1.75 times the intrinsic value then i look very hard at it that is my thesis still in place is the company delivering as much growth and what are the headwinds which the company can expect what is the kind of competition and if i think that there are uh, the, the thesis is diluting then i start to lighten up my position so let's say you know you estimated a 25% growth rate right in a company mm-hmm. and uh, you do your reworking after it reaches 1.75 or two times your intrinsic value number right you do your reworking and probably the number is uh, you can anticipate the same growth level maybe even higher right but given all the fact that say the intrinsic value doesn't take change much right and uh, value is still high uh-huh. do you not sell or do you lighten up the positions no i i start lightening up my position so thesis changing is not important valuation is more important yes valuation at some point of time it becomes a very critical factor so at some point of time yes i do lighten up my position
let's go to the process which you have zeroed down and right. uh, also go to my core process yeah. is based on a book which cost only 250 bucks or so which is uh, which is little book that beats the market yes that's the core process but we have modified a lot i have my own ratios which is i'm a chartered accountant i i think you know so when i looked at the ratios which everybody uses it's part of our job to use those ratios i looked at a ratio like return on equity or return on net worth as it's called in india and return on net worth is nothing than net profit divided by shareholder capital including reserves so there's a flaw in it the flaw it is is that the company may have a very high ronw but created out of a lot of debt which is not captured in this formula there's a second formula which is ebitda or operating profit divided by return on capital employed which is roc divided by capital employed which is roc there's a flaw in it why because ebitda doesn't take the interest into account ebitda may be very high but interest is bankers are taking away bulk of the money so you are actually not creating value so i looked at these two formula and i was surprised to see nobody is using a combination of this these two which eliminates both the flaws so you take the net profit and you take capital employed because for shareholders that is what matters i have given you the money you borrowed i don't care where you got the money you have invested so much of money you are investing in the business what are you getting from me you are getting the net profit out of which the dividend will flow so to judge the real value creating capability of a company you need to do this ratio which has no name which is net profit divided by total capital that is capital employed you know let, uh, i mean i will go further to your process but let me just ask few questions here only Right. Um, you know, so let's let's go back as to why this ratio would ever come at the very first right. place, right? The ratio which which you uh, efficiently said ROCE, or maybe you know, there's a book Damodar's book lying here, and he says that okay, let's not take EBIT, let's take EBIT into one minus T and remove the tax component also. And the only reason why we're doing this is because we want to see before paying off the debt holders what is the company making on the capital which is employed by the company. Right. So. I have, my Why question is right there. My question is right there. What am I going to do with that ratio? Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to know what the company is doing before paying interest? What is of value? So should I tell you my understanding? Sure. So, um, so let's say if I have to compare two companies, right? The major value of that ratio comes when I'm comparing two companies where the the capital structure of the two firms are extremely different, and I just want to know the efficiency of the capital. The way the capital has been utilized to generate returns. Now, if I want to do that, I would have to take interest component out to see what the company is making before paying off any kind of capital holder, be it share capital or debt capital, and just by the operation of the company, how much the company is making or the money it has induced in the business. So, from at least from my understanding, that is the reason why that ratio came up, and that is why the people we see that ratio. So. No. Once again, what is the practical utility of knowing that? I I have given a very clear practical utility of knowing, knowing how much is left for the shareholder, and how much that is on the total money invested in the business. Okay. That is what matters. If you were running a shop, right? You are a shop owner. Right. 
you are running a kirana shop then the month you have 30000 rupees you know that you have put in 1 lakh rupees in that business you know that you have borrowed 1 lakh rupees from your brother in law you know you have 2 lakh rupees invested in that business and you have got 30000 at the end of the month right so that's a utility fair enough so i mean uh, the more i am thinking simultaneously about it let me put it this way that if i have to um, so you are saying that no matter what the capital structure is at the end of the day the shareholders get paid right so maybe for comparison purpose you won't want to do all those things but when you are investing in a particular company it's better to look at yeah, that yeah yeah right. i th- i tell you what there are lots of ratios right huh? right there are you know debt equity free cash flow hazard ratios right if you do this one ratio right you would have eliminated the need for anything else okay why because suppose i you have a cut off of 8% 9% 11% doesn't matter what we have a cut off of 11% right and we also look at companies which are into 7 and 11 category to see if they come up but that's side right uh, work main work is 11% plus now 11% plus of this ratio there are only 400 companies in india fair okay are you saying you're taking the average of how many years this is for four rolling quarters so now if you see these companies there will still be companies which have which are doing very well with it after paying off the interest also so a company like nitin spinners right nitin spinners has a debt equity of around close to 2 right. right right so if i have a spreadsheet where i have this figure right. and i have a figure of debt to equity ratio also just as an additional check whether this has come through the filter right i think i'll have all, about 50 to 60 companies with a debt equity ratio of more than 0.5 in this right so see how robust this ratio is sure. so i could go and see who's borrowed what interest rate etc etc what business what sector it's all is relevant to me right so having done this let me continue what i do right. i have another in the spreadsheet another thing which is uh, your tax rate okay your effective tax rate the moment it falls below 30% or so 28% 27% i start getting i start to look because then there is something else going on over then it's one of the reasons of course uh, i was not entirely right but one of the reasons we never touched kaveri seeds was the fact that its tax the ratio was 0.1 or something but that was for a different reason which uh, ayush mittal is explaining one day but in any case we we just automatically we rejected that for right reasons or wrong reasons that we may get uh, so if you do these three things you put the strictest possible test beat 11% net profit on your capital employed stay below 0.5 on debt equity ratio right. and pay 35% tax 30% tax whatever whatever the filter you want to want to use and all these are it, it, they all fall in line there is once you choose the first the others will automatically fall they are all high tax payers very few of them are not Kaveri's was one of the exceptions. Right? I said, "Itna sab company hai, why bother?" So we didn't bother about Kaveri's. Right. I'm exceptionally lucky, I guess. So once you put these three filters, right. you have only the the creamiest companies in in India. Right. Now, you have two choices. 
so we still of course we are still doing this is frozen i mean we we had this system in place and we selected stocks on the basis of this in 2012 2013 and so and the results are to be beat all the mutual funds in every year except 2013 14 15 and then all the two year three year four year periods in each of these okay. we started 2012 to 13 12 to 14 12 to 15 all of these years we are number one and if i'm getting right this is the parallel if you if let's say i draw the parallel between joel greenblatt and your joel greenblatt does use ebitda just use roc roc and uh, earnings yield yeah and use earnings yield we don't use it. so that's another story okay okay we don't use p sure. i mean now we have started using p little bit because it's uh, quicker easier we also are able to relate to so when we started we were not using p yeah. and subsequently now more tests the difference between what we used to use and the p is narrowed down right. so we may drop that altogether and start using p as going forward but when we started we, we were using operating profit to market cap the reason we were doing that and the reason we were not doing net profit mm. is because it's very simple i said this first one which is our roc already captures quality companies okay mm. now what i am interested to know mm. is on an operating basis what is the valuation of this company because i don't need to now know i have already done one round of filter mm. now my only focus is on the operating part of the business operating part of the business is not the focus earlier because ultimately for shareholders return is what matters for valuation what matters is how many times your operating profit of this set not all set not the entire 1400 companies that we have in our database right. Right. having selected this we wanted to know on on that basis so uh, we used to forgive me sorry. but if i can slightly ask more on this issue yeah. why why not operating cash flow or operating profit divided by market cap plus debt or ev so to speak how and why not why only market cap? no the uh, the all these things are there in the textbooks for a purpose i think all this thing is there to help investment bankers value businesses okay, okay. okay. for mergers and acquisitions okay when you 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 also tried this right. market cap with the thing and we picked up a great company by this it was amazing it was just going at a throwaway price when we did these numbers um market cap plus debt Operating profit, market cap plus debt, and number two in that list, two, two and a half, three years ago was NBCC, and it was one hundred and seventy bucks. So I looked at that and I said, "Wow, <laughs> what a stock!" So that's how we we selected that, but we dumped that because that has no predictive value. There is the using that metric, you will not be able to figure out whether the company is. Uh, is uh, attractively priced or not for the simple reason once again to repeat what i said i have already moved away from companies which are debt heavily indebted okay. so i am now working with a smaller set of companies filtered ones where debt is low so for me to add back debt and figure out what is a business value which is really an acquisition value of the company is meaningless that's it okay. so we do uh, we we used to use only these two metrics okay weigh them 0.5 each we rank them and then then apply my mind so what what we used to do is 
we still do we have five categories okay. unlike mid cap large cap and small cap we have micro cap small cap can you simultaneously give the yeah one to up to 100 crore is micro cap 100 to 500 is small cap 500 to 2000 crore is mid cap right. 2000 to 10000 crore is large cap okay. 10000 above is mega cap sure so we said that we don't want to have a complete full rank if we want if we have a one rank right. we'll end up selecting all kinds of micro cap and small cap companies it really makes no sense so we had this stock letter in two variants one is lion which is more large cap one is antelope which is more mid cap okay. and in any case this cap sizes we have had for 7 8 years now for right from the beginning we had because i never understood why i have only three try and segregate that even finer because the characteristics of each are all different and in any case you are asking what uh, issues with mutual funds mutual funds have axis bank and wipro in their mid cap portfolios also there's one other things that you know which which screws up performance according to right so so we had these five cap sizes and uh, we sorted in within them so we have a rank within the mega cap we have a rank within the large cap and so on and so forth the final stage is what my own 25 30 years of experience is comes into play when i look at a stock and my sense of what i know of the promoter and so on and so forth so um, so there are certain stocks certain companies we even if they're high on the list we will try and avoid we may not pick them even if they're cheap psus is a fascinating story when modi came to became the pm psus were really cheap and we bought a, put a lot of them in the uh, in our stock letter okay i also suggested some of my friends also buy them in september 2014 we sold everything including banks including stocks like rec and all that which have subsequently collapsed right so we we watched for 6 months and when i was looking at the portfolio i actually exited had a profit of around 10% over 6 month period in that psu portfolio right <laughs> so i really lucky escape because all the stocks have subsequently have just collapsed right. after we exited in september october okay. at some at a loss some at a profit but overall the portfolio that part of the portfolio made money so but, but this is one was, time this is one time right in the beginning i said what we don't do we don't speculate of what is going to happen this is where we did and we got it on one, on our neck i was going to ask that because it's completely negates with what you totally missed. and all this is a learning process right. this is now refined in the last 6 months even further you know i am able to articulate that we don't speculate is at that time if you had asked me i would have told you only the formula i would not have been able to say that what i am able to uh, that we don't do this i have learned from the prashant jain experience and so the other people uh that we uh, track currently so our idea was that this uh, is not the right process right. and uh, to speculate so we did that right. exactly so that was these are all part of the learning process one other learning process i have described i have not described one of the steps that i do apart from the um, uh, roc or roc and uh, rp so let's let's call it money life uh, yeah <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. I don't discuss this with qualified people because they laugh at me. Right. <laughs> you know. So, the third one 
we realize now this is more and more work is going on right. there are certain kind of companies if they go up i don't care because i've reached a certain emotional stability as far as my process is concerned that if tomorrow acc goes up 300% i don't care but i do care the fact that i did not recommend britannia 3 years ago right. that really hurts me okay. so we are doing further work on what you, stocks that have actually gone up right. and why we didn't do why we didn't pick them and what we missed out of them so if there's somewhere able to be fine i missed out some parameter which could be another parameter i'll try and do that okay. the so third thing which we have now plugged one of the reasons why what we missed out and now we have plugged that is a very crucial thing which is neither there in uh, wesley gray's book nor there in uh, in this guy joel greenblatt's book which is earnings momentum and this is a very 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 important thing you can well, that be there in wesley gray's upcoming book ah, okay right right correct is there so uh, this would this would separate uh, this would prevent you from buying a stock which is a great stock which is just not moving because they're eating up your time and capital and so on so th- there are stocks which uh, which are high on roc right. which are reasonably valued right. but just will not move and we we realized this based on our previous experience so what was missing there then we looked at it and found out there are stocks within our universe the right. stocks that have done best have certain amount of earnings momentum behind them right. so we have found a way to capture sales momentum and as well as the profit momentum okay. of the last 4 to 6 quarters okay. and uh, we have now a metric to to track that and bring that as a third factor so we have now three factors equally weighted to look at ttm growth of yeah. sales yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. okay now one is the valuation one is the roc one is the earnings momentum fair enough now when i look at this uh, i am very confident that this approach is going to beat mutual funds persistently this is going to be far and the difference is going to keep increasing because our returns you see the only a birlas and life from opportunities fund and an lnt value fund have twice come every year their order will change right. one guy will go up and another guy will come on right. but as long as we are in number 1 number 2 it essentially means that our uh, lead will continue to increase with the rest of the industry if we fall back on number 7 then we are again back to square one in terms of putting out but 3 years in a row we are number 1 and the reason for that is that hey, we are not never going to buy a stock like sbi okay. hoping that the banking sector blah 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 right. and uh, and we are also fairly confident that the with all these three things in place which is earnings momentum and valuation and return on capital employed right we have covered almost all the major factors that actually create value Yeah. create enormous so value could it be because say if you look at mutual funds is it the size which is the biggest hampering which is not the case in your no no, no size is nothing to do with it no, no size has something to do with I mean, it they have a compulsion to go with size so if a right. mid cap mutual fund ends up with 5000 crores no the uh, the size is so the size does not allow no to... no the the reason is that it's a it's a completely different thing that i'll say now 
which we haven't discussed at all, which is timing. Now, I have a firm belief that you can time the market approximately. You don't need to buy at the top, uh, sell at the top and buy at the bottom. It is possible to time approximately and timing can make huge difference to your results. Mutual funds can overcome the problem of size with timing, but they don't do that. So, they should be... Uh, they should be in cash. For instance, I remember one of the things I tweeted last. Like say, for example, that is what we, I was going to come to. So, for example, maybe a year back, I think you have a process on your asset allocation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wherein yeah. you were on high on cash, maybe in September 2014. 14, yeah, yeah. So, maybe you could say go on to that part of the model also. Wherein yeah. yeah, this is a very important part of the thing because that that helps us uh, show. A, Terrific performance on the invest tool, which is part of MSSN, yeah. where the asset allocation is there. Nice. So, what we've done is we've uh, we've sliced the valuation, historical valuation of Sensex or Nifty or whatever you call it. Right. And people normally take a very broad approach, 22 to 24, 26 or whatever. Mm. Now, this sounds like a number. But it's a huge variation because it's a small two-digit number. You don't realize 20 to 22 is like 10% jump. Right. And 10% jump for the market is not small. Right. Okay, right. So we realize that this is not the way to do 20 to 24 or 26 or P is high and this is low. We have actually done a distribution of market P at intervals of 0.5. Okay. Okay. So 20.5 to 21, 21 to 25. And we have a clear sense of what should be your percentage investment in stocks right. at each of these intervals, as at 0.5 intervals okay. of P of market, overall market P. Okay, and uh, it this is not something anybody else has done. They've, even the even IDFC fund is a very it's a broad it is too broad according to me, right? Yeah, so it has. There has to be many more bands according. Do you do this for other asset classes to make a complete portfolio? Or yeah, yeah. We are, we have a tool okay. by which if you can just put an X amount right. at any time, it will tell you right. depending what your objective. It could be a lump sum investment. It could be a SIP or whatever. So suppose you say I want to invest two lakh rupees, right. which is a lump sum. So it will tell you how much to uh, invest in fixed income and how much to invest in equity at this time. Okay. And within the fixed income, depending on your tax bracket, it will tell you divide between FD and ta tax-free bonds and so on and so right. forth. So what happens is that if you do, if suppose I'm seeing 30% in equity and so right. on and so forth. And I have a program to get you, let's say 60-40 should be your ideal asset allocation. Right. I'm starting with 70-30 right. and I have a program to get you to 60-40 by the end of 18 months, let's say. Right. Okay. So, we have an approximate way of calculating that as time passes, what should be your in, uh, investment in this. And part of this, suppose the market collapses tomorrow, so that roughly those uh, 20 percentage points that you are not investing in equity right now, right. let's say it should be 60, now it's 30, so 30. Right. So, 30, 30, 30 gets accumulated in FD. Right. So, that particular month, you will get an alert from us saying that now in push shift so much of money from there to get to 60-40. Yeah. Okay. We have that uh, algorithm 
in our team. So, uh, and so that is there for both monthly investment as well as a lump sum investment. So this this takes care of your stock selection, which is on the basis of the refined greenback version. Right. And then the allocation as to how much goes into equities. Right. Let's go to the let's go to that portfolio which you are constructing. Are you putting equal amount of money in all the stocks which are putting? Right. How much? I have another point to make. Right. The reason why we have necessarily we have to follow this process is because we have neither the time nor the opportunity to meet companies. Right. And also, and then I keep saying that even if we met the companies, I don't think there much value is going to be added to our stock selection process because right. according to us, companies themselves don't know what is going to happen four quarters down the line. So let me just complete that part why we do that. So you're saying that even if you have all the bandwidth, you must you might still go with the same process. Yeah, except that I, for the micro cap and small caps, I may want to meet. I mean, ma- meeting management may help. The for for instance, I give you a name of a stock called uh, Finiotex. Right. Okay, the stock is sharply up today also. Right. Now I'm very curious to know about this company. There's hardly any information in, on this. Right. So, if we meet them based on my experience of, you know, assessing companies, promoters, what they are, and so right. on and so forth, I may be able to make up, take a call on them without getting influence. On the other hand, the downside is that they might say such fantastic things, and you know, human mind is such an amazing thing. We may, we may feel that we are in full control of right. our senses, but we may just just for an example of information. So the last time the stock went up was Amitabh Bachchan was invested in this company. Yeah? Okay. That was a block deal. Okay. So I think oh, so. I didn't know that. Yeah, so but, maybe but, I'll search and get back. Amazing. I think that is the case. Okay. But tell me one thing. Then isn't that diluting the whole idea that the biases should not come into picture? Because then the judgment will come. In. Yes. That's why we are quite, we are fairly confident that we don't need to meet people right. to be able to get a sense of right. this. And in fact, in one or two cases where I I got accidentally I met a director of a company right. which we had anyway recommended right. and my idea was reinforced right. that yes this company is doing well the stock has just not moved up, up at all right. you know so the stock moves on the, on a set of factors which have nothing to do with uh, what's the company is happening at this time or whatever so let's so go to the allocation yeah. question so within the portfolio how do you do this yeah there, there are two things one is that uh, initially when suppose you are a subscriber now what should you be doing? And suppose you are a subscriber from 2012, and what should you do? Two different situations. Right. If you invest now, we say divide your money equally okay. into all the stocks. For that, also we have a tool. Okay. Uh, because if you have a limited amount of money and these prices are all different, that's one of the reasons we had to drop Aishar Motors and MRF. Both were part of our portfolio. Even though we knew these stocks are great, we had to drop them because people started complaining. That you want us in equal allocation. <laughs> this sets the benchmark for an equal allocation for all the other stocks. We don't have that kind of money. Mm-hmm. So we had to drop. So we also have limitations which fund managers don't have. Yeah. You know? <laughs> See, it it works both ways. It's all really funny. So we have a tool for that. Suppose you have 20,000 rupees. Right. Uh, you put that amount 20,000. You say Put, press the submit button. What the tool does is according to the smallest price stock right. to the highest price stock, it will give you an order. Suppose AVT Naturals is one of the stocks. Right. And the price is 30 rupees. Right. And suppose with 
the last stock that you can buy out of this 20,000 allocation, suppose it was 2,000 rupees, so you can buy 10 stocks, right? right? right. So the tool will suggest uh, you're buying 20,000, uh, 10 stocks, 20,000, 1,000 rupees per stock. Right. So the AVT will probably still say buy 35 stocks. Right. So it will change the number of yeah. stocks that you need to buy so as to give you an equal exposure right. based on the price that the, that's your initial investment. Once you start that process, then stocks will move in different direction. AVT will go down to 20 and, you know, maybe Alembic is going to go, go up another sevenfold or whatever. But generally, how many stocks are there in one there, category? Right That's now, so. there are 17 active stocks in one category. So, but when you do the ranking, do you have a set number of stocks in mind as to okay, number 215? We wanted to have 33 max, which we say in the stock letter will not go beyond 3% exposure to a single so that okay. makes it 33. Okay. We had we had gone up to 30 but we have reduced now and okay. we may add 2-3 the market crashes we may add 5 but we are quite comfortable and between 7. The remaining is cash? No now this is now this is full com full complete in, uh, total total investment this is fully invested portfolio right now. Well, let's say if you are 15 then you say the allocation will go up accordingly? If we we try not to. We may drop one, we may add another. Right. These are fine tuning. This is a kind of fine tuning which is difficult to do. You right. can do only in a PMS right. or in a fund. We are not able to do. If you see a very good opportunity, we add to you know, people who are sticklers. They come back and say, you asked us to, where will I get the rest of the money from? Right. We try to adjust that. Right. But I, you know, I really don't know what is the answer to this. Because within right. a process, how will I be able to accommodate everybody? Uh, we don't know. Fair. So we just we make sure that we don't out of 17 we don't suddenly make it 33 then that really process is collapsed there you know it's not fair. which means you are 50% in cash you know so we don't do that Fair. we just do two and we probably uh, there are always stocks to remove not too yeah. many maybe 5-10% stocks like Colgate right. we, are, uh, we were wrong about Colgate we were wrong about Castrol right. so we got rid of Castrol we had added one more stock from there so Colgate, we are waiting to see what happens in this quarter. We'll probably <coughs> get out of that. Right. We'll add something else. And so there's always some stuff. What is the frequency of revaluation? Is it quarterly because of ETN changes? Yeah, yeah. quarterly. Okay. These results are reviewed quarterly. Right. Uh, the entire database is rerun quarterly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, so this becomes... So the, the, there, is, there is a last part to it. Right. So what happens when the stocks start moving in different directions? Right. Are uh, there a lot of theories on rebalancing, right. and the classical theory say you should rebalance back to 60-40 or 70-30. We have tested this five years ago, and we found rebalancing has no merit. Okay. And uh, I was very heartened to see that uh, somebody else has come to the same. Oh, coffee can portfolio. If you see that, uh, I was just reading it a few days ago. They said, if you did not, so what happens is that the best gets better and better and better and this reduces in terms of value, right. in terms of portfolio. So you, you really don't need to do anything. Their study again reinforces what we had found out five, six years ago. Are these studies available for people to read? Coffee can is available. No, no, what you did with Indian students. We did with uh, mutual funds. So once we did it with mutual funds, we said that no. It has the rebalancing theory. Doesn't work. Okay. You no know, need is what our sense is. Okay. So, let me, okay. so this, then the stock really is not 
is not uh, performing right. like a castor or colgate you get out you automatically get out of here. yeah so that's it that's the exit yeah so your selling decision is based on your ranking of stocks on your parameters and if it goes out yeah. it goes out yeah so there is no story theory nothing like that no looking forward in future absolutely <laughs> okay